The portion of God's word that we will focus our attention on for a few minutes this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth And the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Humility is kind of a big deal for a Christian. The scriptures have themes of humility running throughout. I want to give you two examples. The first one is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This comes from Romans chapter 12. We hear, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Not that long ago, during the season of Advent, we gathered here on on Thursdays for our midweek services, and our theme was Songs of Christmas. And one of the songs we looked at was Mary's song. The Song of Mary has another incredible description of of humility and why it's so important. Take a listen from Luke chapter 1. The Lord has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, He has brought down rulers from their thrones. 
but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. During the season of Advent in our confession and absolution, we had this phrase, you call us to be humble. We struggle to do so. Humility is something that we all struggle with, and that's kind of the point of this parable. It, it falls at a, at a point in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is dealing with people who really have a hard time with accurately viewing themselves. It starts in Matthew chapter 19 with this rich young man, and you might be familiar with this account. There's a, a rich young man who comes to Jesus and basically says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, it's the law, the, the commands of the Lord in the Old Testament. And the man replies, well, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. Then, come follow me. The point is made over and over in this account that this young man had a lot of wealth. And his wealth had become for him an idol, a false god, the thing that he clung to for comfort and peace. He thinks he's kept God's law perfectly. He thinks he's good. He thinks he's quite good. And yet Jesus points out one thing is a problem. You are an idolater. You have false gods. Jesus' disciples are watching this happen. They see the guy walk away after Jesus says, give up everything and follow me. And you can just see the wheels turning in their heads. And, and Peter replies by, by saying this. He says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Can you follow this through? Peter says, all right, well, he thought he was good, but he wasn't able to do what you asked, but all of us here, we've done exactly what you asked him to do, so that must mean we're good. What are we gonna get for our goodness? And and Jesus basically says, for following me, you're gonna get more than you could possibly imagine. Your inheritance in heaven is gonna be unlike anything you could possibly dream up. It's gonna be that good. But, but, the many who are first, they'll be last. And those who are last will be first. You see, Peter had fallen into the trap along with the rich man and, and all of us of thinking that he, he was pretty good, at least compared to other people. He was pretty good. And as someone who was pretty good, he was probably at the front of the line. He was probably up at the front of the line of the people who were going to get led into heaven first because he was that good. And yet Jesus says, those who think they're first are actually at the back of the line and they're in danger of falling into the pits of hell. And those who are at the back of the line, they're actually the ones who will be first. This comparison game is something that we all struggle with. I think it's one of the reasons that sitcoms became so popular in the late 80s and and early 90s. They were full of regular, ordinary folks, just like you and me, relatable. 
But they had problems too. Their lives weren't perfect. And usually they'd get through and everything would be great. But as you watched and you compared yourself to them, it kind of made you feel good about your own life. Well, I got problems, but (laughs) could be worse, I guess. And then TV stepped it up a notch in the late 90s and early 2000s with reality TV. Producers around the country found the most messed up people with the most messed up lives, and then they presented them to you and to me. And we'd sit and watch and say, wow, (laughs) I'm pretty awesome. That's how it went, right? You find one person in the world. You just need one. One person who's really, really screwed up and you can elevate yourself over them and you can say, look at me. I'm first, they're last. I'm in the front of the line. They're in the back of the line. And I'll say I'm impressed. It was looking a little meager about five minutes before church, but we filled up pretty good this morning on this snowy Sunday morning. All these people here, all you thought it was, it was a good thing to get up and drive through the snow and and come to God's house. It'd be really easy for you to put yourself over someone else who didn't make that choice today. And even the people who are joining us from home, they're, they're watching, right? So it'd be easy for you at home to say, there's a lot of people who aren't watching right now. There's a lot of people watching Meat Eaters or, or watching their favorite show on HGTV, drinking their coffee. They're not spending time in God's word at all, but I am. It's not that hard for us to put ourselves over someone. The comparison game, I'm, I'm looking pretty good. But you notice that at the very end of, of Matthew chapter 19, at the very end of our parable, Jesus says basically the same thing. The The last will be first, the first will be last. Those words bookend the parable. They're on both sides, right at the beginning and and right at the end. That's the point of the parable. The last will be first, and the first will be last. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, and you might have heard of that. The 95 theses, right? Even if you've never read them, Those are some famous theses. He was hoping to have a debate with people about what God's word says based on those 95 statements that he believed were true. Well, that debate never happened. He was hoping that he'd be able to go back and forth with other theologians, with other Christians, and talk about what it is that God's word actually means. But seven months later, nothing. And then came an opportunity in early 1518 in a town called Heidelberg, to have the debate that he was hoping to have, but new theses were required. And so he wrote 28 new theses that you've probably never heard of called the Heidelberg Disputation. 28 were theological, 28 theological theses, then he wrote 12 philosophical ones. Out of those 28 theological theses, they're all applicable for today's purpose, but I cherry-picked three. They're really, really applicable to what we're talking about. And so I'm going to read you these three theses, these three statements, and we'll talk about them, and then we'll apply them to the parable, okay? So in the first, in the first theses, in the first thesis, Martin Luther writes, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. So if there's a part of you that thinks, because I got up and came to church this morning, God looks at me a little better than everybody who didn't. 
And if there's a part of you that thinks because I turned on the live stream and I'm watching from home, then I'm better than those who aren't watching at all. You've just added another sin on top of all the sins that you've committed recently. Sin on top of sin. You're doubly guilty. Listen to it again. The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. The point here is that if you think you earn God's love in any way, shape, or form by what you do, you don't understand God's love. You don't understand grace. We talk about this all the time. I hope it's like a broken record, but grace is love that is not deserved. And the moment you begin thinking that you deserve it just a little bit, just a little, it's no longer grace. You think you deserve it. It's no longer undeserved and you've just sinned. It's that simple. Here's the next one. It is certain that a man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. That one's pretty straightforward, right? You must completely despair of your own ability before you're able to receive God's grace. You need to totally give up. You need to stop trying to be a little part of your salvation. You need to stop thinking that something in you is pleasing to God. That's not how it works. You need to completely despair of yourself, completely despair of your own ability and just give up. Now you're ready to receive love that is truly not deserved by you nor by by me. And then the last one for today. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. I like that one. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. A theologian of glory is someone who is looking for glory for the human. In some way, shape, or form, they are looking for credit when it comes to this relationship that we have with God. In some way, shape, or form, That theologian is looking for ways to claim glory for himself or glory for others. But a theologian of the cross only cares about the cross of Jesus. That's it. And that is exactly what's happening in our parable. The people who got hired at the beginning of the day, they agreed to a wage that was fair. A denarius was a good day's wage. Nobody was getting ripped off for a denarius. There is a reason these people agreed to work for that wage. And this was a good day's work. Let's use 6 a.m. as our time frame. Everything is given in hours from there, right? So third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, eleventh hour. So you do the math, about 9 a.m., more workers come, right? About noon, more workers come. About three in the afternoon, more workers come. And then the eleventh hour, 5 p.m., more workers come. You are working out in the fields from 6 a.m. to what? 6, 7 p.m., 12, 13 hour day, Some people have worked three hours less than you, some six less than you, some nine less than you. Some came and just got in maybe an hour or two at the end of the day. This is a no-brainer, right? If you are the most highly paid quarterback in the entire league and then someone else gets paid more than you, but they're not as good as you, then you need a new contract because your value just increased. 
If you agree to work for a wage, but somebody who worked a tenth as much as you, a twelfth as much as you, they get the same wage that you agreed to, well, your value just increased mightily. Doesn't this make sense? A theologian of glory looks at this parable and they call evil good and good evil. They call the person who thinks they have value before God that evil, that sin, they call it good. This is a good and right view of the world is what the theologian of glory would say. This is only fair. This is only good. You owe me more. A theologian of the glory looks at God's generosity, his goodness, his love, which is good. It calls it evil. That is unfair. You are wronging me. You are treating me unfairly. I'm worth more. It's like the person who grows up in the Christian church and lives their whole life as a Christian who gets heaven and then somebody's an atheist for 87 years and then in the last year or two of their life becomes a Christian and goes to heaven. I buried a man like that once. 87 years. Total unbeliever. Admitted it. He was an atheist. He hated the idea of God. 87 years old, he became a Christian. Buried him at 89. What's he get? The same heaven. The same heaven. A theologian of, the glory, of glory looks at this and says, this is not fair. I've worked my whole life. I've given up Sundays week after week after week. I've given money. I've served. I've used all the gifts that you've given me. I deserve more than the person who wastes their whole life and then sneaks it into last minute. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. But a theologian of the cross calls the thing what it is. Calls evil evil and good good. A theologian of the cross knows that the eternal God, the ruler of heaven and earth, the one who created and sustains all things, and as the creator gets to make the rules and says this is how it will be and this is what you must do and this is the standard you must live up to, That creator God sent his own son to obey the laws that we fail to live, that we fail to live by and obey. He sent his son to live up to the standard that we fail to live up to. Jesus did that in our place. He did not deserve to die, and yet what did he do? He went to a cross where he suffered the hell that the world deserves for its sins, your sins, my sins, the sins of the whole world. Jesus endured that hell. That is a suffering he did not deserve. I deserved it. You deserved it. He suffered it. He poured out his blood on that cross to pay for your sins and mine and then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that you and I would know death has been defeated. Sin's greatest consequence, utterly destroyed. Death is not the end. Jesus' cross means we are at peace with God because of what he has done for us and we will spend eternity with him in heaven. Now a theologian of the cross looks at everything in life through the lens of that cross. It doesn't matter if we're suffering here in this life, the worst suffering that you can imagine, the cross makes us smile in the midst of that suffering. Because we know that no matter what we endure in this life, our sins are forgiven, we're at peace with God, and an eternity of bliss awaits us. We are at peace with God right now even as we suffer, and even the suffering in this life God will use for our good opening our eyes to the fact that this is not our home, but that heaven 
is what he has prepared for us. A theologian of the cross is humble because there's no other attitude that could remain after looking at the cross and looking at life through it. Humility is the only thing that makes sense. I am nothing. You are everything. I have done nothing. You give me everything, Lord. I don't care if I work all day and that person works for an hour. If we get the same reward of heaven, God be, be praised. And so you get to leave here today humble. Safe travels on your way home. You're going to be surrounded by people this week who are not theologians of the cross. They don't know what you know. They don't believe what you believe. They don't know what God has done for them. Maybe, just maybe, you'll be the person who's labored for a lot of hours and maybe they'll be the one who just snuck in at the end. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be a reason to praise the Lord? Look for ways to share God's love with them this week. If you need help, ask. I'd be happy to help. I'll help you in any way that I can. Let's look for ways to share God's love with anyone who will listen so that many can join us at the end and receive the same reward. Amen.